You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Episode 159, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to the Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert, I'm reading back Dr. David Graham. He's an infectious disease physician in Billings, Montana, who is nearing retirement or sort of quasi-retired. Longtime listeners of the show will know that this is Dave's sixth appearance on the show, so he has easily outstripped everyone else who's been on the show. And so really because he's just offering analysis and insight into what's going on with COVID and what's coming down the road. If you've been a long-time listener, you know that back in April of 2020, David accurately predicted pretty much everything that we're seeing right now. There's some things that we got a little bit off, and you can go back and listen to the show. We were so, 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 so right about COVID. What we talked about then as far as what our expectations were for the disease, but the highlights were it was going to be endemic. A vaccine would not limit the spread of a disease, but it would probably be a disease modulating, which means you wouldn't get as sick, and that eventually this thing would have to burn itself out. And there's nothing we could do that was going to stop this. I think it's been pretty clear that that's the case. Maybe new development to the therapeutics have been more effective than we probably anticipated. Certainly with Paxlovid, it's going to, which we'll talk about briefly today, but I've talked before with Dr. Monica Gandhi. That's one that's sort of a game changer, probably too late to really significantly affect this pandemic a lot, but it will probably help people who are frail or who are um, older, at least at more risk, and will certainly improve survival for those in that age bracket and risk stratification. We're also going to touch on Dave's recent retirement and how he's retiring in the midst of a pandemic and he's part of the FIRE movement, which is financial independence and retire early. We're certainly just the FI part, which is the financial independence, which is sort of more what I'm going for at this point. I don't seek to retire early, although I guess it depends when you define early. <laughs> but the financial independence aspect, I think, is a very important goal for most people to reach as soon as you can. And it allows a lot of flexibility in life. It allows you to roll with punches that make her. And we'll get into that a little bit during the show. But we're going to briefly recap what's going on, how we can fix things as far as mandates, masks, and briefly what to do to help yourself retire early. As always, you can go to the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 159. You can also find a link there to email me if you have any show ideas or questions. I'd like to get back to those pretty quickly. Also, if you are interested... I appreciate any sort of financial support you want to give for the show. All revenue generated goes just towards the production and promotion of the show. 
I'd also like to thank my new friends who are joining me from the We Are Libertarians Network. Hello. Hope you enjoy the show. Make sure you subscribe to the show. And please leave a rating. And kind written reviews are always encouraged. But without further ado, Dr. David Graham, in retiring during a pandemic, enjoy. So hey there, I'm here with my friend, Dr. David Graham from Billings, Montana. He's an infectious disease physician who is nearing retirement. We'll kind of say quasi-retired at this point, and we've had this discussion before, and we'll talk about it a little bit. But Dave's been our resident COVID expert. He's been on a number of times to describe things, and everything has we've predicted and talked about since April of 2020 has happened, has transpired. So welcome back to the show, Dave. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. Number six. Yeah, I know. You've been on episodes 86, 96, 101, 114, and 143, and now 159. So <laughs> you you definitely have the record easily. And yeah, it, well, nothing's changed. So, you know, we can go back to the first podcast and, and just air <laughs> that one, right? The, the only thing that's changed is my frustration, the fact that it just doesn't seem to quite end. Like, I feel like we're, every every step that feels like it should be over, it still just is, it's just continuing and perpetuating. And I it's um, I'm sure you feel the same frustration in infectious disease too. Well, it's the total truth, but I'll tell you, I am more optimistic right now than I have been since like pre Delta. So I hope we can talk a little bit about that and some of the positive things that are going to happen. Gosh, darn it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, let's talk about that because I think, you know, I don't know what the, the specific definition is, but you have a pandemic, which is basically regional epidemics, right. That are, global and they're all over the place. And so it, it's called a pandemic and you have that with any sort of virus, really, I guess, until you have baseline immunity for everybody, everybody's exposed either through vaccination or through an ex- actual infection, right? Once you've hit that, I guess you've kind of moved into endemic stage where this virus is now circulating. It's going to get to sort of its steady state of when it sort of comes and goes in various regions. Yeah. And I guess you've been seeing that play out in the media a little bit. You know, finally, people admit that this is not going to be eradicated, that this is going to be an endemic. But then you have pushback that people are saying, you know, well, endemic doesn't mean safe. And that's the truth. And if you look at the numbers right now, it's clear we're, we're still in a pandemic, right? This, this is rip roaring. This is raging through the world. Um, what will transition us from a pandemic to the endemic um, that is what is really interesting is what's going to happen in the next six months. And I'm, I'm sort of Schrodinger's cat on this. You know, this, this is a box and something will happen, but we're not going to know what it is until we look inside and see if the cat's dead or not. You know, are we going to have just kind of little mini waves as the post-Omicron fittest virus kind of plays out? Or are we going to have another variant, you know, kind of tip the scales? And again, this, you know, we, we could... Um, 50% have a new variant that sets off another pandemic um, in our post-Omicron world. And what that means is that, yes, by now, most people have been infected. Most people have been vaccinated or infected. So we've had people have two, three exposures to the virus. So in a mostly immune world, what does COVID look like? And it's 50-50, in my opinion. I just don't think we know. Yeah. And so, I mean, obviously, the next the next, according to the Greek alphabet, the next major variant will be pi. Uh, yep. So that for sure it's going to get sequenced on March 14th, right? 314. That has to be the day it has to get officially sequenced. Yep. Pi day. Pi day, exactly. Um, there are all, lots of assertions when it comes to new variants. I mean, people always, I hear people all the time say, well, the next one's going to be less virulent. It's going to be more infectious. 
I think it's clearly going to be more infectious. It has to be by definition if it's going to outcompete the current Omicron. Do you think it's fair to say that it's going to be um, less virulent or at least no wor- no more virulent and more dangerous than the current version? So, but remember, it only has to be more fit in the setting of a post-Omicron world. Right. So if most people actually get Omicron, then they're going to have relative immunity to the Omicron strain. So the next virus, even if it isn't as fit de novo, as long as it's more fit than when people have a lot of um, relative immunity to Omicron, that's the one that's going to take off. So, and, and if we're seeing anything with repeat exposure, what we're seeing is less death, less severe illness. So I can look at my hospital right now. We've got people in our hospital again. You know, generally we had uh, 20-ish people during the low periods and up to 70 or 80 during the bad periods. You know, right now we're, we're around 50 to 60, but they're not on high flow nasal cannula. They're not in the ICU intubated. So these are people staying two, three days um, instead of eight to 10 days or more. Um, they're less sick. And then what's also interesting about them, we're about 50-50 vaccinated, unvaccinated in the hospital right now. So we're seeing a lot of vaccinated folks, um, usually not boosted, who do wind up in the hospital for a day or two. Yeah, in our experience at our hospital system, it seems that, I mean, obviously there's more who are unvaccinated than vaccinated who are hospitalized. And and the ones who are sicker are clearly the ones who are um, unvaccinated, or at least as far as we know, no prior exposure to. And um, they tend to be younger and they tend to be less sick, less less, um, less comorbidities, which I guess is exactly what you'd expect, right? You expect that, for one thing, I mean, to speak sort of morbidly, the people who are the sickest have already been sort of thinned out of the herd, so to speak. And then also, um, they don't have, since you don't, you don't need that immunity um, to get as sick, right? Or I guess this a confusing way of putting it. If you have immunity, you have to be, have to be more frail. To, get, to require hospitalization and, and support in the hospital. Yeah, and I think, you know, Michigan is an interesting case study because you guys actually did have an alpha wave, right? Yeah. Almost no one else in the country had the alpha wave. So, you know, where we were at is literally we were decelerating from our delta wave. We had a late delta wave when Omicron took off. And so, you know, our hospitalization numbers were just coming off the delta peak when um, New York and the East Coast was blowing up. So, you know, number wise, we're a little bit behind. We're probably at our peak right now with, um, can you believe we have like right now, one out of eight asymptomatic people are positive for COVID on our preoperative testing. So, you know, figure (laughs) that out. You're in a room of four people. There's a 50% chance someone has, you know, COVID in their nose. Now that doesn't mean it's alive replicating COVID, but but it's just astronomical. Our our symptomatic rate is 45% right now. So, you know, you can't walk down the hallway and not be exposed to COVID right now. So, but that is in the setting of just getting over this massive Delta spike. And then you guys had the alpha spike before that. And you had the, what are we calling it? Wild type Wuhan before that. So, I mean, how many people are there out there that haven't been exposed to this virus now? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there are definitely some, right? There are people who are able to isolate. There are people who live in rural areas who have managed to avoid it. And, you know, there are probably people who, for whatever reason, are sort of immune to it, or at least uh, they're less likely to be attacked by this virus, which we can't explain, right? They just don't get infected easily until they're maybe exposed to massive doses or something. Yeah. The black box you had mentioned earlier when we first talked back in April. Yeah. Well, in the black box, I think that's still out there. The black box is the pediatric age. 
So, you know, why do kids not get sick from COVID? Um, and it's a fascinating, fascinating thing because you ask certain parents out there and they think if their five-year-old gets it, there's a 50% chance they're going to die from it. Yes. Right. And then you ask some parents and they know that uh, even if they're exposed to it, there's a very low chance that they actually get symptomatic disease from it. There's something about being young and, and generally younger than five, you know, two years old or something like that, where they're exposed to common cold coronaviruses all the time. And generally they're asymptomatic to these. So, you know, I think that's the black box is what's really happening in kids. You know, this, this adaptive immunity in kids is different, um, you know, versus people that don't get it, that don't, that aren't exposed to it. This is more of the, um, you know, the circles you run around it. Right. So people that are in circles that get COVID have gotten COVID and gotten it multiple times, whereas people that haven't gotten COVID yet run around in circles that you know, don't get COVID um, because otherwise they already have COVID. Right. Right. It'll be uh, years before we kind of figure all this stuff out. Like, um, I think it's going to there's a there's a lot of things that no one bothered. Or certainly there weren't a lot of people working on respiratory viruses and how they come in waves and pandemics. I mean, I think, you know, we could look at it. I'm sure they're, you know, the rhinovirus that sweeps through the country that no one bothers to sequence because it's just a cold, right? But you probably see that you might see the exact same characteristics of how it comes and goes and some region for whatever reason gets hit three times as opposed to another region that gets hit just once. And I'm sure this happens all the time, but we just don't have that sort of, I can't think of the term. Yeah. We don't have the surveillance system. Surveillance is the word. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Well, and also, you know, this is a non-linear system. This is a a chaotic system, right? So we really don't even have the models to explain um, transmission and disease um, prevalence if he gets it. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, even when you look at the flu, it's probably, there's probably a lot we could learn from this that would help us in figuring out the flu a lot better too, because I'm sure the fact that the flu disappeared for a year, I mean, that's, that is very interesting and that there'll be a lot of things people, you know, come with their theories of why the flu disappeared for a year. Was it uh, viral interference it, because you're infected yeah. with something else? You can't transmit flu. Well, we know people can get flu and COVID too, and yeah. you can have multiple viruses at the same time. Yeah. Uh, or is it because there's just no travel? I mean, the, all the, the reasons, because it, people say, oh, it's the masks. I tend to think that's probably not it. But anyway, there are all kinds of ways you're trying to figure this out later, I think. Well, and absolutely like this year, you know, we were starting to have a um, influenza one um, year and we had um, RSV was just going off the walls and both of those have decreased with Omicron. So it, it probably is just a, a out, competi- uh, out competition by a superior um, virus, right. a more contagious virus, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, as with most things, there are probably a number of explanations for why something happened, right? It. Yeah, people were wearing masks and people generally didn't do as much stuff together. When they were sick, they stayed home more than they used in the past. They didn't travel as much. And so all those things are enough, especially with an endemic virus like, you know, a rhinovirus or adenovirus that it's you're more it's easier to suppress than something that is that is novel to people's immune systems. So so speaking of masks, Eric, let's just go ahead and tackle the most controversial topic of the day. How about masks <laughs> in schools? What do you think about that? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think there's no point to having masks in schools because I think, you know, you look at uh, when you look at the the evidence for controlling disease, for one thing, I think with this virus, I think it's very shoddy. In fact, there's probably almost no evidence that it actually is useful. I think you have an incredibly low risk population and there is absolutely a cost to it. And I think, you know, people say there's no cost to it or kids are resilient or kids don't mind. They And it's true. Kids will put on whatever you want. And I've said this from the beginning. 
that people, if you told kids to put a pumpkin on their head, they'll put a pumpkin on their head if that's just what everyone's doing and that's what they're supposed to do. But that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And I think there are definitely some, there's some problems with masks. And I think one thing that is, that is um, hard to quantify is the fact that if everyone's wearing masks, people are viewed as a disease vector or that there's a threat and a danger. And so you have kids living in a constant level of threat that they know there's some sort of problem. And that's not healthy to your normal development, I don't think. And by putting them in school all the time, I mean, it's sort of like running active shooter drills every day of the, of the week. Uh, you might be more prepared for an active shooter, but you're going to create a lot of anxiety and depression. And we're seeing that it's exploded in kids. And and I guess the, the, the counter argument would be is if you really thought this is preventing serious harm to those kids, then it makes sense to do it. Like, you know, we've got no choice, but this is what we have to do. But I just I don't see any credible evidence that this is helpful in any way. And certainly when you get to the point where everyone can be vaccinated who is at risk, who can be, it makes no sense to, to mask kids and to sort of put all these burdens on them to protect people for who could protect themselves if they wanted to. I mean, I, so I, I just don't see at this point, it doesn't make any sense at all, except it's become sort of a religious sort of movement at this point. I don't know. What do you think if that sounds accurate? So I think, you know, this, this is great, but what step, taking a step back, what can we do to bring people together? You know, this is probably the most divisive issue we have right now. So what if, and, and, and I agree with your assessment, by the way. So, but what if we started with, you know, I just don't think we know that this is a medically unanswered question and people do, there is room for different opinions on this topic. So that said, you know, we can look at the evidence which is mounting in the popular culture that supports a maskless school environment. Like for instance, um, the Wall Street Journal recently finally published something comparing the uh, efficacy of, you know, cloth masks versus surgical masks versus N95s, right? So that was in the Wall Street Journal. The CDC finally pointed out that cloth masks are essentially ineffective and you should use a more effective mask. So, and in fact, what, what did the LA Unified Schools do with that? They actually outlawed cloth masks and are now requiring all of their kids to wear procedural masks to school. So, you know, the question is then with cloth masks, if we have no benefit, then essentially all we have are the downsides to it, right? Every intervention has risks and benefits. So if we are trying to argue from a popular culture point at this at this point that there's really no benefit to this, then if there's any risks at all, it would seem that those risks outweigh the benefits. So, but, but even if we try to temper our argument, there are folks that will religiously defend anything is better than nothing. I have an right. immunosuppressed child. Um, I have immunosuppressed parents. And, and I think the, the response to that at this point is the idea of one-way masking, okay? So yep. this is a popular topic that I hope gets more play, but where we are now is you can get vaccinated if you wanna get vaccinated. You can get boosted if you wanna get boosted. We now know there are N95 masks that are extremely, extremely effective at protecting you regardless of my behavior, right? I have a right to swing my fist around until you know it meets your nose, right? right? So your nose has this great 
ability to protect itself from my fist now in this world. So why are we worried about me swinging my fist around anymore? Yeah, no, I think that's very sensible. And I think there are two there from a, now we're kind of like almost a policy, right? Because I think as long as you don't have a mandate to wear masks, I think it's entirely acceptable to have people at school say, Hey, schools say you can wear a mask. And ordinarily five years ago, you couldn't wear, walk around with a bandana on your face and wear a mask, right? We know that that would have been <laughs> disallowed for sure. But now we can say, Hey, if you feel like you need it, you should wear a mask. If you want to wear a mask, you can. I, I think it's a, I think you're right. It's a very, it's a good middle ground, but I think, you know, to, um, the problem is, of course, there will be schools that still maintain the mandates, and they are generally the largest school districts, and they are in the most influential parts of the country. I'm in Michigan. You're in Montana. We don't, you know, we're not worth a hill of beans to people who make the policy decisions at a federal level, right? Yeah, but there's mandates on both sides. There's mandates to wear masks, and there's mandates that make, make masks illegal, right? Correct, yeah. So, They're both silly. So I would say that this is not a medical issue at this point. This is a legal issue. What does the law allow your school district to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you could, there are probably some things about uniforms. And so there's probably some sort of, uh, you know, precedent for having standardized dresses and, st- or, you know, dressing of clothing and stuff. So I, I don't know what the legal definition is, but I do agree to it's much rather than ban masks altogether, or it'd be much easier just saying you can do what you want. You can protect yourself. And we, like you said, we know ways to protect yourself personally and those you were in your multi-generational home and those sorts of things. Yeah, I think there's plenty of ways to protect yourself. It obviously goes, I mean, to leaving our scope of medicine here, it definitely goes to a broader discussion on school choice and the fact that maybe you want to, maybe this is how you sort of sort schools out. Maybe you have a couple of schools in your district that are like everywhere masks and another one where they, people don't or something like that, or that's the expectation. It makes it messy, but you know, having more educational options is probably useful for parents and, um, and actually, honestly, for teachers and whoever who is, you know, thinks that this is a very important issue. I tend to think that what will happen, and I think you, I'm guessing you'd probably think the same, that when you make masks optional, most kids won't be wearing them. Uh, you know, their parents might make them wear, which, you know, I, I think that's probably what, what will happen. But I think that would, at least giving people the option is probably the, the best way to, without right. as much contention to, to solve this problem. But what's important about that is that there should be no mask shaming if you decide to wear a mask or if you don't decide to wear a mask, okay? There is room for different opinions in this world. This is an unsettled medical issue. Please make up your own mind. But importantly, if you're gonna mask, wear an effective mask, right? Don't wear a bandana. I know, well, I you know, in the hospital, we're still required to wear these surgical masks. And I think, you know, the Bangladesh study showed maybe a marginal, you know, it was, it was very weak evidence, I think, especially, and it was an unvaccinated population. I think you could probably argue that those masks really don't do anything either. I mean, I think there's. Yeah. Yeah. And the Atlantic had a great piece, um, you know, discussing all of the literature that supports masking and really none of it meets any sort of evidential rigor at all. So there, again, this is, not, this is not a medical question, Eric. There's room to debate this on medically. So what do you want to do? What's right to do from a legal stance? Let, let's decide it on that, not the medical issue. Yeah, no, I, I, I kind of think that's where we're, we're moving, but I think there's still some people are sort of dug in in some ways in both, in both sides. And the, the more the power, it seems right now, still held by those who want to uh, mandate that, especially in the larger districts, you know, like the Los Angeles Unified School District, New York, 
Chicago, Detroit. I mean, those, those that's where that's the hardest part is to try and break through, and because that's where most of the kids are. I mean, you know. Yeah, but you know, clearly there has been a softening of the CDC's stance recently. There's been, uh, I, I want to say, they've become a little more rational. You know, the idea that we don't have to isolate for ten days anymore. Um, it's five days and that you don't have to test because guess what? We can't even get tests. Um, but, you know, then there's this idea that we're needlessly boosting adolescence, you know, causing the risk, especially in males of myocarditis for something that really doesn't help them and probably doesn't help the community. So again, this is any risk there. If there's no benefit, it's all risk. So, so you know, the CDC has got this really mixed, mixed history it seems like they're trying to do better, but, but again, this, this is not a safe world we live in. It needs to be a safer world that we live in. And when, you know, getting back to the, the less than five-year-olds, you know, if a parent has a concern that if my child gets COVID, there's a 50% that they're going to die. If we can come back with some reason and tell them, you know, your child has a 10 times higher risk of dying in a car wreck than they do from COVID. And I, I know that hits home to you, Eric, but, yeah. but what actually is the risk to your child? It's not COVID. It's, it's the next 20 years of learning that we've decimated by these two years of masks we put on them by the shaming, the fear. Yeah. Well, I had Sean Dione on my show and he's a researcher at Brown university and they follow, they do check, do IQ checks basically. I mean, to, and they found a dramatic drop in IQ in, in it's young children. I mean, it's real. I mean, you know, you might, we could argue about why, what is causing it. And, you know, is it verbal? Is it masking? Is it, but I don't know, or maybe kids just less interacted in daycare or whatever. But I mean, that's a real finding. I mean, that's, and that's not someone who's looking to, um, you know, there's, there's certain people who are looking for, sort of for excuses to move an agenda. And this is someone who has no agenda, just like, oh, look at what we just found. It was like the accidental um, surveillance uh, data. Um, yeah, I, I wonder too, when it comes to the mandates, I mean, how do you think, with passports, I think that's the you're seeing cities starting to adopt these. I think we both agree that the passports really serve no purpose in, in the sense that whether you're vaccinated or not, it's clearly you're not going to stop the the vac the the disease, right? I mean, if you've been recently vaccinated or boosted, you probably are less likely to get infected. But at some point in a few months, you're pretty much no different than the rest of the population, or you know, not not enough that it's going to make a difference in controlling the spread of the virus. So these, these passports, it, to me, it feels like they have to just die off. But again, I see, see more and more cities adopting them. And uh, it's, it's definitely a political sort of move at this point. It's not really based. I, I mean, I think they base it on science, but there's not really. It's maybe old science, we'll call it, that they think, well, you know, the vaccine was stopping the pandemic back in, you know, a year ago. And now it's maybe not. Maybe it was just our imagination that it was stopping it. It's hard to know, I think. But either way, do you see that? Do you see those going away or do you see them just transforming them and saying, well, now we want to make sure we're just, we're not going to worry about that, but we make sure you're vaccinated for flu and make sure you're vaccinated for polio and mumps and measles. And just, we're just kind of sort of, you know, change that passport system from what it is now. Yeah. What I guess I worry about is every time we have an uptick in cases, we regress, we regress to these more regressive policies of non-pharmaceutical mitigations that we know don't work. You know, the Omicron and the travel bans are a perfect example of <laughs> yeah. that, right? So where we have to get to 
And, and I don't think this is controversial anymore, but you're still not allowed to say it. But where we need to get to is where we stop counting cases, where we don't care if people are infected anymore. Because what does infected actually mean? It means that you have virus replicating in your nose and vaccines don't prevent that. They're not supposed to prevent that. So what is the point of a passport that says you got a non-effective thing at trying to do what that passport's trying to do, which is not con contaminate other people, <laughs> right. not infect other people. So, so I have said for a long time now, and I've been blacklisted for it, that cases don't matter. And cases don't matter. They haven't mattered for a long time, but how can we get beyond that and start focusing on what it is important, which is not shaming people, what we can actually do is meet people halfway, listen to them, understand their fears, and try to help them get vaccinated if they're not vaccinated, or to understand if you're not vaccinated, guess what, you're going to get the virus. But guess what, if you're vaccinated, you're going to get the virus. Right. Okay, We're all going to get this virus. We're all going to get it three to five times before it becomes the common cold right? That's what's going to happen. There's no stopping that. There's no rock you can hide behind not to get COVID. So do you want some of those illnesses to be vaccinations rather than illnesses? I think that's a pretty good trade-off, right? You know, we know that even when they're vaccinated and boosted and have their fourth shot, there are people that are going to die from COVID. We know that there are people that are genetically susceptible to this and are gonna die from it. So my heart breaks for people that have lost the genetic lottery that this novel virus that wasn't supposed to infect people that for whatever reason they were born with a set of DNA that allows them to be susceptible to die from it, um, they're gonna die from it. And more than that, we do have a lot of immunosuppressed people in this world that, that God knows we need to protect them, right? But at what cost, right? Is it at the cost of generations of raising children? Yeah. You know? Well, and especially when it doesn't matter. Like, I mean, I think, you know, this, this argument would be a lot more challenging if there were, if there was a utilitarian argument for doing a lot of these interventions. Like if we said, hey, everyone's masking and it is absolutely stopping the spread. And as soon as we take the masks off, it starts blasting off again or the by having these travel bans and preventing people who are infected getting into your country we're preventing the, the infection from getting into our country uh if that was if that was the case then it would i think it'd be a lot a lot dicier argument but i mean clearly none of those things work and um yeah. and yeah. so i so i don't know i mean i i i feel at some point people have to i think what you need we just need leadership from it has to be fauci it has to be those people at the very top those are the ones that are sending the marching orders to most of these public health agencies and the state health departments right i don't see a lot of state health departments outside like florida and texas but they are seen as sort of rebels and you know they're you have to have you have to have the federal government accept these things and i i don't know i don't see it right now this current administration them Back, I shouldn't say backpedaling, but essentially that's sort of what they're doing. They have to accept the fact that they were wrong initially in what they were advocating that the vaccine did and that it prevented infections. They said it'll end the pandemic. Well, you and I would agree that it has, right? It, is, it, has, it has changed the, out, the outcome of your infection to COVID. You know, where it was more people are going to die from this, definitely less people have died from it. However, it's not preventing people from getting infected, right? But that message is not so, being spread, shared. 
Well, and I think we have to go beyond this, Eric. I mean, even if the CDC were to come back to its pre-COVID baseline, remember it's the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. It's not the center of common sense. It's not the center of balancing priorities, right? So you remember we went into a room with someone that had chickenpox and we had to wear an N95, even though we had chickenpox before and we had no chance of getting chickenpox, right? Right. So the CDC does not have a history of being logical. They have a lot, uh, they have a history of safe rather than safer, okay? And this is the world we have to get to. We have to get to a safer world because we can't create a safe world. Well, and I mean, the answer to that is that people just ignore those edicts, right? Like, you know, but what happened is people didn't bother putting a mask on or they wouldn't bother, uh, you know, there are all sorts of things like I would use the top step on the ladder. I mean, there are all kinds of things we do, right, that that we um, that we just ignore. And so I, I don't know, how, I but I do not feel like this is really going to truly end until we get um, it. Maybe not the CDC head, but there has to be someone at the top who says, you know what, this is over. But I think there are just people who, at this point, still not ready for it to be over for political reasons or because they don't want to be the one who calls off the dogs and then, oh, suddenly there's another variant and it turns to be worse. And now you can they'll be blamed politically for yeah. saying, hey, it's all OK when it really wasn't. Well, and I think people will figure this out. There, There's a movement among Democrats to do some more middle of the line measures with these things as well. And politicians will respond to that. You know, they'll, they'll respond to their base. But, but you know, so even locally, our school district has a masking mandate. And the question was, was coming up just as a matter of routine right before Omicron, they were going to stop the masking mandate. <laughs> and our, um, our superintendent continued the masking mandate, which I thought was the right thing to do. Okay, even though I know masks don't help, the optics of it, we had a, a, I was going to say shit ton, but I shouldn't. We had a large number of kids get infected with COVID in our schools. And imagine if we had stopped the mask mandate right before that happened, people would have gone, aha, look at that. You stopped the mask mandate and look what happened in our schools. So we, we really couldn't stop that ineffective mitigation at that point because things were destined to go wrong and, and optically you know, the lack of mass, therefore the superintendent was going to be blamed for that, you know, let alone if unfortunately we had a child die, you know, it would be his fault. The blood would be on his hands. Right. So there is a right time to be more logical and rational. So let me ask you this then, say you're in a setting where Omicron's fading and you have a mask mandate in your school, when is the right time to stop that mask mandate that you know is ineffective? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I would just say right away, obviously, but because that's just maybe I'm, uh, I'm just so tired of all this doing things that just don't work, because um, I don't like doing anything in medicine that is of no point, right? I just like uh, so, I would say right away. But I think you know, politically, I think you have to say once things start getting better, we're gonna get we're gonna get rid of the masks, and we can we can look at what happened in Florida where they have no mask mandates. Now I'm sure kids are wearing masks there at some places, you know, I'm sure. Um, but we see no change in how the pandemic moves based on what your mask, you know, whether kids are wearing masks in schools or not. I don't think there's any question that that makes no difference. Um, so I think you just have to, I do think you have to be bold as a superintendent. You're going to have to, and you can, again, like you said, 
you say, hey, if you want to wear masks, we know you can wear effective masks, and and we're gonna we have ant, we're anti-bullying in schools. We always have we have been for the last ten years. That's been a focus. It will continue being a focus if kids get harassed, you know, pulling their straps or something and being harassed. We're gonna put an end to that. And I think that I think that would be the the middle ground. You, but you could say we you know we're not gonna require every kid to wear it because there are kids we recognize that have problems learning and communicating. Yeah. And I think you I think you could make an educational argument and say from a safety standpoint. We don't think it's we don't think it's necessary for everybody to mask. I, I think you could do that right now, yeah. and I think you could I think you could make a good argument, and I think you could convince enough people. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think the answer is soon. As soon as cases are coming down, that's the time. But you know, let's reflect on the fact that the WHO doesn't recommend masking kids younger than five. Right. Let's reflect on the fact that in Europe, most schools don't mask. Period. Right. So the U.S. is a significant outlier in masking in schools. Let's let's get with it and focus more on what the world does um, and do the right thing for our kids, right? Yeah. Well, and and then you know, I look at I've got a kid in college, and it's kind of insane what's going on in the college. You see huge disparities. You see, like I'm looking at the Big Ten, for instance. University of Iowa has no mandates or anything, and I don't even they don't have a vaccine mandate or a mask mandate. Um, and then University of Michigan, Michigan State University here in Michigan, they have mask mandates. They have now vaccine mandates. Um, in fact, Michigan State still was virtual. I think they maybe are going leaving virtual learning now. You know, to I don't control the spread. I'm not quite sure what their point is. So you've got 20 year olds who are the probably the healthiest members of your of your population, and you're treating them like they're porcelain dolls. Um, right. So I and you're requiring boosters that have the potential for harm more than helping young Which, adolescent men. Right. I mean, I, I think there's, it, it's hard. There's no data showing that the boosters do anything for somebody who's 20. I mean, you have, when you have such small risks, I don't know to actually get having complications of COVID. I would think your risks for getting a complication of the vaccine, which are, are still incredibly low are the same, or there's not a huge order of magnitude difference where you say it's no brainer to require them for people. I, it's, it's stunning, except that I think you, you're seeing a, a real shift in political. You're, I guess, seeing a good example of a lack of political power, right? Young kids, they don't vote. They can't, they're captives. And kids in college are pretty much captives too, right? They don't really vote. Uh, they don't have any economic, you know, means to, to make decisions. And they, um, and, uh, and they feel trapped because it's sort of like a doctor, if we want to transition to the next point, who is, feels like they have to keep working because they have to maintain a certain lifestyle. Kids have to go to school to get their degree and they can't just say, well, I'm not going to go because they have this, this mandate they don't want to follow. They just sort of are feel they are trapped, and so it's like a golden handcuff, right? I mean, you you have yeah. no choice, and so they're they're bound. To, and I'm sure the boosters are the ones driving a lot of this at these universities that they insist that their school is doing the right thing. Right, the people that money. actually pay the bills, right? Or, or the people, well, not even that. People probably who pay for the Donate buildings. Money. Yeah, yeah, those those are those are the ones yeah. who probably are least affected by all the you know measures because they don't have young children. They're the ones that are you know millionaires. Can I, can I bring us back to optimism again? Please. So let's talk about Paxlovid, Eric. What do you know about Paxlovid? Well, Monica Gandhi talk, talked about it on my show a couple episodes ago. And uh, I mean, it's pretty amazing. It's like, uh, it's a protease inhibitor, right? And it's it's uh, based on sort of the medications that are used for HIV. And it kind of stops the replication of, of the virus. Uh, and so it's pretty remarkable. I mean, I in some ways I feel like it kind of hit too late, but it's probably 
but that's probably not entirely true because there are people who are going to be susceptible to this. Like you mentioned, frailer, you know, older people who have a couple of comorbidities who will, who will definitely benefit from this. I mean, what's been your experience with it and have you used it at all in Montana? No, it, it, there's, there's no Paxil dead anywhere. You can't well, get the, it. Oh, it's in Europe, so, right? Yeah. Well, it, it's just, it's, it's FDA um, approved at this point. There's just no supply of it. So, oh. but again, I'm saying I'm optimistic for the future because eventually we will have it. And, and it is truly an amazing drug. Like in the treatment arm, no one died. Um, 90% reduction in hospitalization. So this will, once we get it, there'll be no more infusions of uh, immunoglobulins. Um, this is not like, you know, like with influenza medicines, um, I talk about how effective they are and it's like a spitball against an elephant. That's, that's yeah, right. how good, you know, our flu medicines are. Yeah, right. But, but again, so we have vaccination, we have N95s, and then we have Paxlovid now, which we can give to people that are susceptible it's a five-day treatment course. It's cheap in the scope of things. What is it, $1,500 or something like that? But this is a truly revolutionary antiviral. It's the first really effective anti-respiratory viral disease medicine we have. So again, the optimism is no one needs to die from COVID anymore once we have an available supply of Paxlovid. Here's the kicker though, we need to give it to people early. So we need testing in order to do that. Right. Yeah. So I guess that contradicts the message I had before who cares about testing, who cares about numbers. Um, that would be true in younger folks, but older folks that have a supply of testing at home, people that are susceptible to this, that have a supply of testing at home. I think that could really revolutionize where we are in, in the, in the spring and, and summer this year. Yeah. Well, and I think that sort of goes to the, a lot of the problem, especially the last year is that we have not really had allowed any nuance or any sort of um, individualization of treatment or therapeutics or what are therapeutics or prevention when it comes to this, right? Like I don't think either of us would argue with a 90 some year old, you know, trying to protect them and maybe wearing a mask or, you know, getting boosted a number of times. But, you know, a nine-year-old doesn't need to have all this stuff done. And they also don't need to be masking and doing all these sort of interventions to prevent infection because it doesn't really matter, really, for the most part. And to your point, testing doesn't matter. You don't need to test 19, 20-year-olds twice a, twice a week at a college to see if they've got COVID or not. But, you know, would you test nursing home residents once a week? I don't know. Maybe there's, you could argue there's some use to that if you can give a therapeutic that's going to prevent them from getting any up in the hospital. So uh, we just need to be sort of just more rational about this sort of treatment it's, and and I, I'm a little frustrated in some ways that the government does not allow us to have any sort of nuanced um, approach to things. And like, you know, if you've been previously affected, you need to get vaccinated right away. Well, it would have made more sense to vaccinate people who hadn't had any exposure when we had a limited supply. But we we felt like there's no way we can have any sort of nuance to our discussion. Everybody gets vaccinated and you have to do it twice and you have to have a certain schedule. But I do, I'm optimistic in th in, with you that I think we have therapeutics. And the cool thing is, with this mRNA vaccine, I think if another one comes out, I think we can develop this vaccine very quickly. And then also therapeutics will come out a lot because we have now effective therapy. And there's no reason to think that this sort of protease inhibitor wouldn't work in a different virus if you just changed the, you know, the formulation. I don't know how they do it. I'm, I'm not a chemist, but, you know, I think you did the same strategy would be probably pretty effective there too. Yeah. So, you know, with the natural immunity idea, 
the CDC finally published something in the M MMWR that actually recognizes natural immunity, right? So again, this is this is a huge step for the CDC. They actually recognize that there is something called, you know, natural immunity. That that doesn't mean that there aren't physicians who potentially will lose their job because they don't want to get a booster when they've just had Omicron, right? This this is something that you hear about in the physician circles right now. Um, so you know, will we truly get to rational? individualized medicine. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Will, will we do the right thing for people uh, instead of make these population decisions? Um, you know, I, I won't hold my breath, but, but you know, we, we can decide on our own too, Eric. So, yeah. you know, I think we talked last time about what we're going to do with our, our kids and COVID, you know? So I think um, with my, my boy, I decided to give him one shot of Pfizer and then I'm going to wait six months and see if, if, what the data shows for myocarditis, right? Does a seven-year-old actually need two shots or is one enough? You know, personally for myself, I got a shot of, I think I got Moderna initially, and then I waited six months and I got my Pfizer. So I'm pretty close to being six months after my second shot, which was six months after my first shot, which I think is the right thing to do, right? To wait six months between your first and second shot. But what do I do now about getting boosted? I have to make that decision soon. Um, so, you know, from a public health perspective, are we allowed to individualize like that? Like a infectious disease physician can make decisions for his own family. An anesthesiologist can make decisions for his own family. You know, can, can um, the average nursing home resident decide that I need to have some um, test available in case I have symptoms so that I can call in for Paxlovid? Right. Yeah, well, I mean, I th I, I'm hoping that th we're getting to that point. I think that I, I think we are, I think we're getting, I think we're getting, there's a understand, broad understanding that things that were believed are no longer true. I mean, I think we've talked about things in the past and they've mostly come, come true, but the rest of the world has not really taken them a while to get to the fact that, you know, vaccination actually just tricks your body and think you've been infected. Right. So it provides the immunity that your body would normally produce if during an infection. So Naturally, yeah, a little bit different, right? Because all you get is the spike protein with yeah, the Yeah, but essentially you're getting the T cells and B cell formation, right? That's, mm -hmm. I mean, that's what the vaccine, yeah, vaccine to the does, spike right? protein. Yeah, yep. right. Yeah, right. So whereas if you have a natural infection, there are more epitopes that your immune system is. Um, so, so, so if there is a different variant in the future, the idea is maybe there would be less breakthrough problems with natural immunity than there is with vaccine immunity. So- and again, the idea is, you know, this Omicron um, specific vaccine that um, both companies are studying right now, it's useless, you know, because the vaccine that we currently have available is doing exactly what it's supposed to do, even right. with Omicron, right? It's preventing death and it's preventing severe illness. So we don't need an Omicron specific vaccine. We just need something that prevent, prevents severe illness and death. And I think the a lot of problems we were having with this is we have a nomenclature problem, especially with the with the public and broadly. It's hard for me to say that a vaccine is going to prevent infection, um, that it's working when you're getting infected, right? Because we know that it's supposed to stop infection because it's supposed to stop you that, or that you have immunity, but it's not enough to keep you from being infected. People are like, "What do you mean? That doesn't make any sense." Right. It it is really complicated, and which as as you know, immunity is the immunological yeah. system is incredibly complex and it's really hard to sort of it for layman's terms to explain this to people. And I don't even understand it totally as a physician. And, you know, I've had 
Of course not. So what actually is infection, right? Infection is the virus getting in your nose and replicating what the vaccine is supposed to do is prevent it from spreading from there, right? We want that, that virus to get in your nose and replicate locally. We want you to get a mild asymptomatic infection every time you're exposed to COVID, right? That's ideal. That's perfect because that boosts your immunity every single time. And you may not have enough replication competent virus to be contagious, right? So that, that's what we want. We want people with low levels of virus in their nose frequently so that they can boost their immune system. But try to say that in public and not get tomatoed. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and I think that was actually one of Monica Gandhi's points earlier when in, during the pandemic when she said there might be some utility to masking that it would prevent the viral load that you get. And so maybe you'll get to that point where you just get enough just to get a slow, like a slight asymptomatic. And I think there's some, there's some, there's, it makes some sense to me. I mean, I could buy that. I think it's got to be a very low amount, but you know, it's yeah, possible, well, especially I'm, if you have previous, previous underlying immunity, right? And, and to commend um, Dr. Gandhi, you know, she had the idea that wearing a mask lowered the, the virulence of the disease, it lowered the severity of the disease, and I actually heard her walk that back recently, and she talks about the fact that a mask humidifies your air, and that's what the effect is. So it's not the dose you get that causes a change in the virulence. Um, her theory now is that masks change the humidity that you're breathing, and that's what affects the virulence. So I, I commend her for having an open mind, even about things that she held. So, so again, this, this is the thing. Science changes, right? We have to have yeah. really strong ideas, but we have to be able to change them rather rapidly as, as the evidence changes. Yeah, I think that's important. And that's why I've enjoyed talking to her and having my show twice, because she is, she is open to being wrong and to, or to having new data conflict with what your, your priors. I mean, that's, that is medicine, right? Like there are things that were oh absolutely true. And then you realize that it was, com you're completely wrong. You had the physiology wrong, the pathophysiology wrong or something like that. So I, and that's why, again, that is why I've appreciated her and I may disagree with her on some things, but uh, I think she comes with it with some humility and honesty, which I th don't think everyone does on certainly in social media. So that's been a problem, but I guess getting back to the very beginning here, you recently retired or almost retired. What's it, now, obviously, you weren't you weren't planning this because of the pandemic. We've seen a number of people leave healthcare during the pandemic. I don't know if it's because of it, or um, I know some people probably have been burned out because it's just getting worked to the bone. Uh, what's it been like for you? Are you a little more concerned about retiring be during this sort of, I don't, kind of a tumultuous time, or is this something that you that you didn't really you were financially in the position you thought you're fine, and it doesn't matter what happens. Yeah. So this, any time is a good time to retire. Right. So, and, <laughs> and my story honestly is a pretty typical doctor story is that I got boxed around quite a bit as a resident, um, have some, you know, PTSD. And I, I apologize for folks who truly had trauma for using the word PTSD, but I mean, residency was not fun. Right. I don't think it was fun for any of us, let alone, you know, medical school. And some people are certainly more capable of, of being boxed around than, than I was. But um, the, the final straw in the coffin for me was the um, fact that we're just cogs in the system, that, that we no longer are allowed to do what physicians should do. So this you know EMR is not, it's a glorified billing system, right? It has nothing to do yeah. with patient care. And, and the fact is, is that is what everything has become in corporate medicine. 
a billing machine rather than caring about actual patient care. So I was on the way out long before um, COVID um, just to the, due to the, the fact that I never really enjoyed um, practicing medicine and being reminded of, of the abuses of, of my youth. And, and then the, the corporatization of medicine was the, the final straw. So, so I do um, financial coaching on the side. Um, I've got three-year-old twins, which is pretty amazing. I'm, I'm an old man to have um, little girls at home, but, but that's a lot of fun. So I'm going to be a stay-at-home uh, a dad and, and try to be a better, more supportive husband as well, which is, is, is truly a challenge, you know, um, taking care of yourself is hard, taking care of kids is hard, but, you know, the, the wife, she deserves more than she's gotten in the last couple of years. So that, that's a priority too. Yeah, no, I, I understand. And I think, I think trying to get to a point financially is where you have some security and you have options is really important. And I don't think it, this is not obviously just for physicians, this is for anyone. And with the passing of my son, I've mentioned this on a number of shows, um, I've been interviewed about it. it. It would have been a huge burden to not, to have been worrying a lot about money while I, where I didn't have the option, where I had the option at least of working or not working. I mean, to, to be able to go a couple months and say, I don't need to work right now. I need to take care of my family, myself, and, you know, deal with a grief. They're kind of, all th- sorts of things can happen. I mean, obviously death of someone in the family close with something, but you can get sick, um, you get injured, right? I mean, there are all sorts of things that can stop or a pandemic can happen and shut down your practice or your business for a couple months. And so trying to get to some point of financial independence is important, not to drive yourself crazy trying to do it probably, right? To do it in a mindful way, but to actually have that so that if something happens and comes up, which life inevitably throws at you, you have the ability to, I guess, respond in healthy ways. Right. And just just awakening to the idea that the final, the financial services industry is not there to help you. Um, you're actually a big target uh, and they're, they're after you. They're, they're there to harpoon a whale. And guess what you are, Eric, you're that whale. So, and, and you know, Wall Street in general, there, there is nothing good about any of that. The incentives are such that they're going to milk you dry all day long and all night long. So actually figuring out that you need to save some money, saving money and doing so in a reasonable way, saving in a reasonable way, that's 95% of becoming financial independent, right? You don't have to do anything fancy. You just have to save money. And then once you've saved that money, you have to do something reasonable with it rather than put it in Wall Street or Bitcoin. Right. Uh, what do you plan on doing? If, I mean, I assume you're going to keep your license. Do you plan on still practicing some medicine from time to time and, you know, People like say, oh, I'll do mission work or blah, blah, blah. I mean, what do you what do you foresee yourself doing for the next, not maybe this year, because this year you're probably going to, I imagine, kind of pull back and sort of just do family stuff. But what do you foresee yourself doing in the future? Because it's hard to give up. I mean, practicing medicine is actually kind of fun, dealing with patients and stuff. I mean, I find that very enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the idea that you're walking down the grocery store and someone says, well, hi, Dr. Graham. I don't know if you remember me, but you saved my life a couple of years ago. Um, it, it happens less frequently now than a couple of years ago, but certainly just being a part of people's lives is rewarding, but I'm going to do that outside of medicine. I, I can't see a way that medicine plays that role in modern society anymore. It's cogs, cogs and machines. Yeah. 
Well, we didn't end on an optimistic note, but I guess the fact that you're getting out and getting to do what you want to do is is very encouraging. So um, I'd obviously recommend people check out your website, fiphysician.com, um, and then they can find out more about your strategies and follow your blog. It's very It's got all kinds of retirement stuff on annuities and... 501Ks. It's pretty wonky, Eric. I wouldn't recommend it for the uh, average person, but if, if you're interested in kind of um, wonky tax laden um, strategies, then uh, it's for you. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, some, there's some things you just need to take, like medicine. Sometimes you just need to take it. And uh, maybe that's getting yourself educated, at least partially in those sorts of things is very important. So, well, it's always great to catch up with you, Dave. Um, I hate to keep you from your family. So I guess you got other stuff going on today. So I really appreciate the discussion on COVID. I'd love to say that this is probably the last discussion we'll have to have because COVID's going to be a non-issue. I do think it's going to take an election to kind of totally wipe this off the board and I, maybe just be till next year till we're just no longer thinking about it and like testing and doing all those sorts of things. But we'll see, I guess. I think it's going to take a look in that box. Is the cat dead or not? That's what's yeah. going to tell us the future. Yeah. Well, thanks again. And uh, talk to you. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. Thank you.